Thank you for your grace that we know supremely in your Son. Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteousness covers us, his blood cleanses us, and his grace keeps us. What a glorious gospel we have. May we even behold that gospel in 2 Samuel chapter 3. For your glory, for the edification, the building up of your people, and Lord, for the conversion of those who do not yet know you in a saving way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Artist Edward Hicks is largely known for a series of folk paintings he did, some 61 folk paintings. And in these paintings, a child stands with uh, a group of animals, an ox, a wolf, a leopard, a lamb. And oftentimes that child has his arm around the neck of the lion. Hicks called these paintings the peaceable kingdom. Inspired by the promise of Isaiah 11, verse 6, where one day in the new heavens and the new earth, the wolf will lie down with the lamb in peace. Well, Hicks was captivated by the promise of peace on earth. Yet something depressing began to happen in these series of paintings. They become more depressing and they become less peaceable. He keeps painting this series of paintings, but from a different angle, a different perspective. The, the animals begin to look more tense and more uneasy. He begins to paint them farther and farther apart. And by the time Hicks produced the last painting in that series, the animals are snarling at one another, tearing at one another. The difference reveals a change that was taking place inside of Hicks himself. Uh, he had witnessed so much disharmony and division, especially within the people of God, that gradually he began to lose confidence that we could ever see peace on earth. You know, it's, it's often easy to believe that Hicks was correct. Angry divisions within the church seem to prevail. You'll see churches split, and even if they don't split, you have factions within the church. And there have been many who have said the reason they turned from the faith, the reason they turned from, from going to church and to the gathering with the people of God is because of the infighting within the people of God. Well, unfortunately, the, the, that alienation that has repelled those people who've turned is not the true faith. It's a parody, a complete parody of of a kingdom that's ironically not marked by chaos, but marked by shalom, the Hebrew word for, for peace, for, for all that is whole and true, that is for those rightly oriented to the king. And today we see that this kingdom of peace, the peaceable kingdom, if you will, didn't just happen out of the blue. It was the plan of the ages. 
wasn't plan B, it was plan A. And text like this one drives home that even in the midst of chaotic circumstances, God's anointed king is ushering in shalom, peace. And it's offered to everyone who would come to him on his terms. Now, over the last two weeks, we've seen that David, after being on the run for Saul for over a decade, has now been enthroned as king over one of the 12 tribes, over Judah. But another king was enthroned over the other tribes, Ishbosheth, and he was placed there by King Saul's cousin, Abner, his captain, his first in command after him. And within any group, if, there, if there's uh, more than one ruler, if there's more than one authority over any particular group, chaos will ensue. And it did. You have tragic division and tragic deaths taking place in the nation of Israel, God's holy nation. Despite that, as we're going to see at the very beginning of this, we see the strengthening of the peaceable kingdom. In spite of the chaos, we see the strengthening of the peaceable kingdom. Notice we in verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. We, we saw that last time, the civil war that has taken place. And David grew stronger and stronger in the midst of the war. While the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Now the language here I think is instructive. If you want to be on the right side of history, to use common language today, you hit your wagon to the kingdom that was begun by David ultimately begun by God and through David. That kingdom is the stone that strikes all rival and imposter kingdoms and breaks them in pieces. Daniel chapter 2. No matter how strong, no matter how invincible, no matter how inviting those rival kingdoms may appear. Having said that, David's growing stronger and stronger. This long war, to use the language of the text, would have been particularly painful for David. Let's not lose sight of his humanity. Remember when he was first anointed as king back in 1 Samuel 16, the consequence of that ultimately was that it meant that he would live in caves on the run from the most powerful man in the world for a decade. And now that he's been enthroned as king of Judah, it's gotten worse. He could have never conceived that it would have gotten worse, but it's gotten worse. And it's likely that he thought at times, my kingdom is cursed. Look at all the chaos. Look at all the division. Look at all the death since I was first enthroned. And perhaps he would have thought, maybe I need to step down. Of course, every Christian has gone through that at some point. 
Uh, when you're converted, at some point you're going to begin to experience a kind of spiritual warfare that you never experienced before you were converted. And certainly every spiritual leader goes through those times where in the course of leading, chaos breaks out and this natural fleshly thought is to perhaps step down. But David is such a great example for us here. He does not give up. And the only explanation is the promises of God. The promises of God that were given to David that he indeed would be king. And so these promises prevailed over his doubts. Indeed, except for the 16 months that he spent in Philistine territory, and during those times it doesn't appear that he ever prays, it doesn't appear that he ever writes any psalms during those 16 months. David, outside of those 16 months, practiced the discipline of promise-driven waiting. Promise-driven waiting. And though we don't have the same promises directly that David had, we do have promises that are organically related to the promises made to David. Because we recognize that the promises made to David would find their ultimate fulfillment in his offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. All the promises of God find their yes and their amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those of us who are now believers are in Christ. And so we benefit from the promises that have been fulfilled in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, for instance... In our seasons of struggle, in our seasons of waiting, we have glorious promises that are ours in Jesus Christ. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. And so, for instance, in Jesus Christ, we know that God is our sovereign protector. Paul says, Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He is our sovereign protector in Jesus Christ. He is also our sovereign benefactor in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how much more will he in him freely give us all things? He's also our sovereign champion. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is it who condemns? Furthermore, it is Christ who died, who is also risen, who sits at the right hand of God, who always makes intercession for us. And he's also our sovereign keeper. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have glorious promises. And when those promises take root in our hearts, we can wait in our seasons of waiting. We can endure in our seasons of trial, knowing like David, we don't have to force things to work. David was not forcing things to work. He's trusting in the promises. That's David. So even in the midst of the long war, David grew stronger, and he grew stronger. But as we saw in that Philistine season, David did not do this perfectly. 
David was a thoroughly flawed man. We begin to see that in verse 2. And sons were born to David a Hebron. Now he, he was the king in Hebron over one tribe for seven and a half years. So now the writer is giving us a glimpse of what happened during that seven and a half year period. Sons were born. Unfortunately, it wasn't from one mother. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel. And his second, Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithrim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. My goodness. Not only are moral compromises seen here, but also unprincipled pragmatism. It's clear here that besides the adulterous and lustful nature of polygamy, he is seeking God's blessing in David's way. Isn't that such a natural, carnal approach to life? Seeking God's blessing. We're hardwired for that blessing. We long for that blessing. But we don't believe God can actually bring it to us without our help. And so he is seeking God's blessing in, on David's terms. You see, in the ancient Near East, a big family was perceived to be a blessing. Read Psalm 127. We looked at that this year on Father's Day. Furthermore, kings would marry the daughters of other kings. Why would they do that? To have political alliances. So if I marry this king's daughter, that king's not going to turn on me because I have his daughter. In fact, he's going to benefit me in my kingdom. And so they would marry kings from other nations, unbelieving nations, for political benefit. And we see that here. The writer indicates that David fathered children from six different wives. Just in that seven and a half year span. Let's go through these briefly. This kind of serves as a table of contents for what's coming, so we won't go through this too deep, because we'll certainly approach most of these guys later. Amnon, he's the first son, and he's going to appear again notoriously in a way that will play a central role in the bloody feud, family feud, if you will, that will all but destroy David's family and David's kingdom. And he's going to be murdered by the third son, Absalom. Second son is Kiliab, who was born of Abigail, the widow of Nabal Carmel. He probably died of young age 
because we don't read anything else about him. He's never mentioned again. But notice these first two wives, Ahinoam, we've already seen them, and Abigail. Um, they were from families situated in southern Judah. Now that's very important because uh, that will play an important role in assuring David regional support. Again, there's politics behind this. The third son, Absalom, you see there, the son of Maacah, he was the brother of Tamar. We're going to read that horrific account in a few weeks, who was violated, that is Tamar, by her stepbrother, Amnon. And so Absalom is going to kill Amnon, and then he's going to attempt to seize David's throne. Now notice Absalom's mother, Maacah, the daughter of Telmai, the king of Geshur. Geshur was a small kingdom on the eastern side of the Jordan, north. Now why is that important? Because David needs to win the north over. And so he's married a, the daughter of a king who will be an ally in the north against Ishbosheth. So he married this woman, Maacah, who would father Absalom out of clear political expediency. Now, the irony is remarkable. The son from this alliance would cause David not just personal grief and heartache, but his son would lead to a political nightmare. It would be a political disaster for David. God does not need our help. God does not need our help, especially with compromise. It will turn back on you 100% of the time. The fourth son, Adonijah. As David's death neared, Adonijah would be the oldest son surviving. And as a result, he would be the one who would claim the succession to the throne, and that would lead to all kinds of strife and chaos once again. Now, we know nothing else about his, his mother, uh, Haggath, except that she fathered Adonijah. The fifth son, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and Ithrim, the son of Eglah, we don't know anything else about these sons or their mothers. But where's the critique of the polygamy? There is not one. But again, the writer assumes that you're reading every case of polygamy, adultery, and even those who have concubines through the lens of Genesis 2.24. God does not change. The culture changes, but God doesn't change. And God's word does not change. Keep that in mind. Genesis 2 and 24, God's design is one man, one woman, one flesh. Add to that Deuteronomy 17, 17, in the law, 
the kings of Israel were not to multiply wives. Why was that forbidden? Besides the fact that it was polygamy, God knew that these kings would be prone to political pragmatism by marrying the daughters of pagan kings because they did not trust the Lord to do their battles. Moreover, for anyone who knows what lies ahead for David, this list of names is ominous. The writer assumes you're picking up on that. At first sight now, this list may support the idea that David is growing stronger, as verse 1 tells us, by compromise. But in time, we'll see that these names were tremors of a great earthquake to come on his kingdom. In other words, yes, David's kingdom is strengthening. David's kingdom is getting stronger, which is a foreshadowing of his far-off grandson, his offspring's kingdom. But in another sense, it reminds us that carnal strength is an illusion. It's an illusion. And you can apply that to any relationship or any endeavor. If you try to build any relationship or pursue any endeavor on the sinking sand of sin and compromise, it's going to fall in the end. Now, at this point, the bird's eye summary of David's time in Hebron is followed by a series of events that will actually be a vital part of David's growing stronger. And it has nothing to do with his polygamy. In other words, God's at work. We don't need to compromise to help him in his plan. And this begins with a massive weakening of Saul's house. That brings us to the second part of this passage. The strengthening of the peaceable kingdom and conversion to the king. It's a beautiful passage. Look with me in verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. And so during that two-year conflict between the house of Saul and the house of David, the power behind Ishbosheth's claims to the throne was Abner. So again, for those of you that haven't been here, Israel at this point is split in two. You've got 11 tribes that are following a man named Ishbosheth, who's the son of Saul. And he was appointed there by Saul's cousin Abner. And then you've got David, who is reigning over the mustard seed kingdom, which is the true kingdom. This is the Messiah, the anointed one from the tribe of Judah, the tribe that will ultimately be the tribe by which the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the servant. And notice verse 1, the house of Saul is getting weaker, but here in verse 6, Abner is making himself strong. How are those two things consistent? Abner is in the house of Saul, 
The house of Saul is getting weaker, and Abner is getting stronger. It's simply this. The wrong person is getting stronger. When the wrong people get strong within a particular group, it weakens the group no matter how strong they might be. In fact, it says Abner here has been strengthening his own position. In other words, Abner's support of Ishbosheth is less than selfless. Perhaps Abner saw in Ishbosheth, who was the son of Saul, a person that he could manipulate, a person that he could control, and there, thereby become the de facto king in the process. Now, whether or not Abner was actually seeking that throne, we know that Ishbosheth believed that he was. Notice in verse 7. Chaos is breaking out. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aya. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone in to my father's concubine? So David had a harem, all right? And Saul had a concubine. What is a concubine? A, a recognized wife with a lower status. That's what a concubine was. Early on, it seems that concubines were used unlawfully, sinfully, but they were used by men to bear offspring when their wives were not able to bear children. Later on, as you, as you move on into the, to the narrative of Israel's narrative, you begin to see these concubines were used for sinful, sensual pleasure. So what are we to make of polygamy and concubines with Israel's kings? Is the Bible sanctioning that? That's one of the, one of the pushbacks from skeptics today. Of course, the Bible's not sanctioning that. We've talked about that. Genesis 2.24 Deuteronomy 17, 17, uh, God designed a, a marriage to be between one man and one woman, one flesh. It's simple. Uh, the reason we see this is that Israel at this point reflected the values of the wider culture. That, that's what it comes down to. And in culturization is something all of us are subject to unless we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's that simple. Romans 12, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so when you see this worldliness begin to take shape, it's evidence that they are not renewing their minds in the Word of God, and they are being enculturated in the worldly culture. Now that's something we need to hear today, where we have... Abortion rights that have become the norm in our culture. A hundred years ago, it would have shocked us to the core to hear that. But the reason it's not as shocking to us anymore, that you could actually kill a baby and not be hung, is because we've been enculturated. Or how about all of the LGBTQI+, and they'll keep adding, rights and agenda that we see even in our commercials. I can't even watch a ball game 
without the agenda from this group. And what happens over time is we get normalized. It becomes normalized. We're not as shocked as we once were. It's like the frog, the proverbial frog that you, you put into a, a pot of water and you just gradually turn it up. And before it know, you know it, that, that frog is boiling. That's how they got there. God never sanctioned this. There's an enculturization that's taking place. And worldliness, keep this in mind, within the people of God, never remains detached. It affects everything it touches. Note Ishbosheth here concludes that, that Abner had had illicit contact with Rizpah, Saul's concubine. I mean, his father has committed this heinous evil. It would be easy to assume that every man in his life is guilty of the same. This meant that if this was true, that Abner was exercising a privilege reserved for the king. In other words, he was claiming kingly prerogatives by taking the king's concubine. But it's far from clear. It's far from clear that this was Abner's method of operation. I don't believe that Abner was actually guilty of this. But if the charge was wrong, it's not surprising. Ishbosheth had proven that his identity was not bound up in the true king. He, he, he was committing insurrection against the true king. So clearly his identity was in something other than the true king. And this is an important principle. When our identity is bound up in something other than the true king. And when that identity gets threatened, and it will, because all rival identities, all identity replacements are subject to destruction. When that identity gets threatened, how do we respond? Paranoia and suspicion. Paranoia and suspicion. So when I feel paranoia, when I am just suspicious of others, assuming they're guilty until proven innocent, that is the fruit of misplaced identity. And it's something that can happen even in the local church. And that strains relationships. It absolutely strains relationships. Notice in verse 8. Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth. And I believe the reason he's angry is because he's not guilty. And said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? Dogs back then were not like our pets that we love today, they were considered scavengers. To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, and to his friends. Have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. If, in fact, Abner was, was telling the truth, and I think that he was, then Ishbosheth and his unfounded accusation suggest 
that he possessed the same tendency to misperceive reality of his father Saul. And this is a, an important word to fathers. The apple never falls far from the tree. The apple never falls far from the tree. God help us. And this was, I think, the straw that broke the camel's back for Abner. Notice with me in verse 9. <clears throat> God do so to Abner. And more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to me, has sworn to him. Verse 10, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Now, first of all, note these sobering words. Abner actually knew what the Lord had sworn to David. He says that very clearly there in verse 9. God do so to me, Abner, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. So why has he been given his support to Ishbosheth? He knew what God had sworn, what God had promised to David. It's simple. Like through so many, like so many through the ages, he had placed his personal plans, his personal agenda above the kingdom of God. Isn't that our biggest problem? Our biggest problem in this culture is not lack of information or lack of evidence. Is that we do not love the kingdom of God. We don't love the king. We love ourselves. We love our agenda. We believe our agenda is going to have a better payout at the end of the day than God's kingdom. But maybe... Just maybe, and I think this way, Abner is starting to see the insanity of king replacements. Something that we're all subject to. From now on, he would redirect his efforts. Notice the language here. To do for David what the Lord promised him. What's he doing here? He's putting all his eggs in the basket of the true king. He would see to it that all of Israel from Dan, Dan is the very northern part of Israel even today. It's a beautiful area, running falls, all the way down to the very southern part, Beersheba. In other words, all of Israel would recognize David as the true king. They would, he, uh, they would recognize David's rule. And of course, because Ishbosheth was a puppet king, this meant the end for him. Keep in mind, all of this is happening, and none of it was dependent on David's polygamy. This is God doing this thing in spite of David. All rival kings and kingdoms to God's kingdom will ultimately end. Politically, 
also personally. Those things that rule you that are not Jesus, the true king, it's ultimately going to end up in catastrophe. All right? We need to believe that. No matter what that king, that rival king, that king replacement is promising you now. No matter what that king may be offering you now. It's like cheese in the mousetrap. Because that king is ultimately going to fall. We see it here. Verse 11. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. Now, it's hard to say that uh, Abner's motives are completely pure here. But like us, when we initially come to the king, I can assure you your motives are not completely pure. I can assure you your faith is not completely pure faith. The motives in our faith are mixtures of, of new love, new commitments, faith, and then some self-interest. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the great pastor in the mid-20th century in Philadelphia, used to tell a story to, to drive this home of little Willie. Little Willie one day uh, was on some ice, and he, his friend fell through the ice, and so he, he risked his life, and he crawled over, and he, he pulled his, his friend out of the ice. Even though he risked his own life. And a woman was there and said, Young man, why, how were you so brave enough to, to risk your life to save your friend? In between breaths, little Willie said, he had on my skates. <laughs> and so when we come to God, our, our, our faith is not pure. It's not strong faith. It's weak faith. It's, it, but it's strong enough to unite us to the one who is strong. And through sanctification, our faith will get stronger. It will be purified through progressive sanctification. I don't think Abner's motives here are completely honorable. But I do believe he has come to realize the insanity of king replacements. He's come to see that David is the true king. And so he comes to him. And so he begins to carry out these new commitments. And however, the undertaking was going to be a very sensitive undertaking. Why? Because the last two years, he has committed to destroy David's reign. He has committed himself to Ishbosheth, an insurrection. And even, as we saw last week, he had killed David's nephew. And so, rather than approach David up directly, he sends messengers. And notice verse 13, and he said, Good, I will make covenant with you. This is David to Abner. Remarkable, isn't it? But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Now, what's behind this? First of all, 
Abner is learning that if he's going to come to the king, he has to come to the king, the true king, on the king's terms. You don't get to come to the king on your terms. You come to him on his terms. Secondly, the renewal of his marriage to Michael, likely not love, likely enhancing David's claim to Saul's throne by making it easier for the northern tribes to transfer their allegiance to him. But again, he had been, Michael had been taken away from him. Remember, Saul took Michael away from him unlawfully, 1 Samuel 25, verse 40, uh, 14. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Ishbosheth's quick response is remarkable. Notice verse 15. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltil, the son of Laish. So he submits to David in part, maybe because he recognized it was unlawful for Saul to take Michael away from David in the first place. But remember, Paltil, who had now become Michael's husband, had cooperated with Saul. When Saul had taken uh, Michael from David, Paltil had married Michael. So he had entered into an adulterous relationship. And so as we see him struggle to give her up, remember that. Verse 16. But her husband went with her, weeping after her, all the way to Barum. Then Abner said to him, Go return, and he returned. It's easy to feel sorry for this man. But remember this. This is so important for our young people, especially. Relationships that begin with sin never end well unless there's been notorious repentance. Unless there's been, with repentance, there's restoration and renewal, but relationships that begin with sin never end well. You're drinking in poison. That relationship's dead even though it looks alive. William Blakely said the tears of Paltil would not have flowed now if that unfortunate man had acted honorably when Michael was taken from David in the first place. If he had said, I am not going to marry another man's woman, another man's wife. This is David's wife. But with that said, what's more germane to the narrative here? is that now with Abner having offered a covenant to David, Ishbosheth giving over Michael, the rebellion against the true king is being brought underneath his feet. The kingdom, the peaceable kingdom is growing. Indeed, we see the strengthening of this peaceable kingdom and the preaching of the kingdom. We've got to move fast. Verse 17. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel saying, for some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Notice what he's doing. He's preaching the kingdom. This former enemy is preaching the good news of the kingdom of David. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that... Israel and the whole house of Benjamin 
thought good to do. This is God's gracious and sovereign ending to the dark years started in the book of Judges when Israel had no king and they did that which was right in their own eyes. And, and the marvel of God's grace here is that he permitted this rebel and all of those who followed him, these rebels, to the true kingdom to return to his rule. After all that they had done, the insurrections, the rebellion. And maybe David was musing on this when he wrote Psalm 103. Maybe he was musing on these very events. Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And, and this grace provokes Abner to preach the kingdom of David. When grace has taken hold, you don't have to have your arm twisted to evangelize. It's the knee-jerk response. And maybe more, maybe more surprising than Abner preaching the kingdom of David is the welcome Abner receives from David. We close here, verses 20 to 21. Notice this. The strengthening of the peaceable kingdom and feasting with the king. Remarkable imagery here. Verse 20. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner. The same Abner who was a rebel? And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. And so David sent Abner away, and he went in shalom. He went in peace. The peaceable kingdom. Quite a remarkable. Besides the example that David is to us of Romans at 12, 18. If it is possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. As much as David is an example to us of learning to wait on the Lord, promise-driven waiting, knowing that God knows what he's doing. We can trust him in his timing with his purposes and plans for us. Besides all that, this is a beautiful, this is a glorious picture of the king treating Abner not as an enemy, but as an honored guest in the royal residence. The king prepares a feast for this former enemy. No condemnation for this former enemy. David is treating Abner not on the basis of his past, but on his grace. This is another hint of the nature of the kingdom of God and the true king. Former insurrectionists, former rebels, finding peace. The history of Abner's relationship with David could have been described in these words from Colossians 1.21, the Apostle Paul. You were alienated and enemies in your mind by your wicked works. That was Abner to David. Most recently, he was the main reason for the civil war in chapter 2 that we read saw last, year, last week. But now he's reconciled. 
not by his own merits. He deserves nothing. But by the goodness of David, you were alienated in enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled you. Of course, the reconciliation that David secured only cost David to swallow his pride. That's all it cost him. David swallowed his pride and he reconciled with Adonai. But the greater reconciliation achieved by the greater David, where we are reconciled to God, required him not to drink, to swallow his pride, because he had none. It required him to drink the cup of God's wrath on our wicked pride. And this text drives home as Paul says in Colossians 1, yet now he has reconciled you through the body of his flesh through death. And this text drives home that because the king absorbs the debt that we owe, there's no one here beyond the grace of God. There's plenty of Abners here. All of us were at one time Abners, rebels to the king, rebels to the kingdom believing that we had a better way. And this text drives home, there's grace for you. There's reconciliation. As Jesus will later say, Matthew 8, I tell you that many will come from the east and the west and recline at table. Who are the east and the west? Those are the Gentile nations who are in rebellion to God's kingdom. They will come and they will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This is the peaceable kingdom. But it's only for those who come to the king on his terms. And what are his terms? Repentance. Repentance towards God. Repentance of your sin. And faith in the king. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Who secured our reconciliation by his cross and his resurrection from the grave. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. Thank you for the Old Testament that's preparing us for the glory and the beauty and the, of the coming King, the one that we celebrate today. We pray this word would just take root in the hearts of every person here. Pray for those who are living in sin right now, that they would repent of their sin and submit to King Jesus. And I pray for those who haven't been saved, that today they would trust in King Jesus. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.